Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. I invite you this morning to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We have been in a series of messages uh, for some time now in the book of Hebrews. We entitled the series, Consider Jesus. He is infinitely greater. We believe that is the message of the book of Hebrews. And let me uh, introduce this, uh, this to you as we begin this, uh, this time, uh, as we said, of, of celebrating Christmas and uh, the, the Advent, the incarnation of Christ is really what we celebrate during this time. And I prayerfully considered uh, doing as I have done for most of my uh, years as your pastor and most of my ministry, and that is to preach a special Christmas series. But as I prayed and sought the Lord and, and just thought about the fact that the book of Hebrews theme is, uh, is Jesus and the fact that he's infinitely greater, I just sense the Lord uh, leading me to stay where we are in the book of Hebrews. And so uh, we'll be looking uh, these next uh, couple of weeks uh, as we lead up to the, the uh, special uh, day or two before uh, Christmas. And really, in, and when we come to chapter 10, uh, we will be seeing the Lord Jesus uh, and the words of Jesus really before he came into the world uh, in his incarnation. And so uh, I trust you'll see and we'll, you'll be able to uh, recognize that in this uh, wonderful book of the Bible that points to Jesus, uh, we're seeing beyond, of course, the incarnation, beyond his birth, uh, beyond his life, his death, his resurrection. And we're seeing in the book of Hebrews the ministry that Jesus has now uh, as the resurrected Lord, the high, our great high priest, and you will see how it all fits together in God's plan. And as we've already said this morning, as we're going to look back and how uh, the writer of Hebrews, whom we don't know who he was, except that he was that was the Holy Spirit inspiring and speaking through him, uh, that he is showing these, as we pointed out, those who who were from a Jewish background uh, and maybe were being tempted and considering the possibility of returning uh, to Judaism, to the sacrifices and things of that nature. And over and over again, he's continuing to show that Jesus is is greater, uh, greater than Moses, greater than angels, uh, as we're seeing uh, a greater uh, than, uh, than the human high priest. He is the ultimate and the greater uh, one, and even now greater in his covenant, the new covenant being greater uh, than the old covenant. And so we see Jesus. And uh, this morning, I want you to look with me at chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 14, Hebrews 9, uh, verses 1 through 14. Uh, 14. Why don't you stand with me? We don't do that every week, but stand with me as we read this passage of Scripture um, together. Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail." 
These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and uh, the unintentional sins of the people. But this, uh, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way, excuse me, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And from this passage, I'll bring a message entitled, Mission Accomplished. Let's pray. Father, it's been such a joy already to be in your presence this morning with the people of God, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord Jesus, we just want to praise you for coming. We want to thank you so much for all that you did for us in coming to this earth. Thank you uh, for the incarnation that God uh, became man, fully God and yet fully human, in order that, Lord Jesus, you might be that, that Lamb of God who laid down his life for us, who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in you. And we thank you for the wonderful book of Hebrews that you and the Holy Spirit inspired and gave to us so that we might learn more of, of, of who you are and of, of your great ministry, even now as our great high priest. And we thank you today that we know you are infinitely greater, greater than anything, uh, Lord, not only uh, that has, has been seen in the past, Lord, but even now greater than all in our lives. You are Lord of all. And we thank you and praise you for that. And now, Lord, we ask that you uh, speak to us in this time in your word. We thank you that even as we've seen in the book of Hebrews, and we believe and know that the word of God is living and powerful, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so we ask you today that by this living word, you will pierce our hearts, that you will reveal anything in our lives that uh, is not what it needs to be. Lord, that you will uh, speak to the hearts of those who are here who may not have repented of sin and placed their faith in Christ, that by the living word of God, by the work of the eternal spirit, that you will reveal to them their need for Christ. And I pray there'll be freedom here today 
for people to turn from sin, to trust in Christ. Lord, that you will overcome the resistance of those who may say no to you. And Lord, as you reveal to them the need, the need and reveal to us our need today, that we would have a spirit of surrender and submission and obedience, knowing, Lord, you know what's best for us. And Lord, you love us and your grace is sufficient for us. So please, Father, do your work and do your work in our church today as we know that you desire to speak to us individually as families, but also, Lord, even as a body. So please speak to us today and help us to see how this passage applies to us personally as well as corporately. And Lord, we thank you for for what you're going to do in this place today. We exalt you. We continue in a spirit of worship today as we want to hear and understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. Albert Speer was credited with keeping Hitler's Nazi factories running throughout World War II. He was the only one of 24 uh, war criminals uh, tried in Nuremberg who admitted his guilt. And therefore he was sentenced to 20 years Uh, in prison for his crimes. He was asked in an interview um, one day, uh, by this interview, the the interview said, you've said that the guilt uh, can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Then he asked, do you still feel that way? Spear responded, I served 20 years, a sentence of 20 years, and I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment. But he said, I can't do that. He said, I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime, and I can't get rid of it. You know, we might say, well, we can understand why a man would feel such guilt for doing such terrible things or being part of and and witnessing and doing nothing about it for those years. We might understand guilt like that. But you know, the reality is many people carry a load of guilt who haven't done nearly as wicked, we might say, of crimes and things that people under Hitler's regime did. But many carry a load of guilt. Some try to deal with with their guilt, uh, their guilty conscience, if you will, through drugs, through alcohol, uh, some seek counseling, counseling and therapy. Others try religion or a different philosophy uh, to try to overcome and to relieve the, the burden of guilt and a guilty conscience upon their lives. We may ask, why is there guilt? Why do we feel so guilty? Well, there's really one brief explanation. The reason we feel guilt is because we're guilty. The Bible says that our guilt can be traced to our sin. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, you can trace guilt all the way back to the pages of Genesis when Adam and Eve, the first pair, man and woman, sinned against God. And the Bible tells us that sin entered the world. You remember their reaction when they realized they'd sinned against God? The Bible tells us that they became ashamed. They hid themselves. Again, they recognized their guilt and they were ashamed. And that's where guilt came from, and it's been with us ever since. It's one indication, really, a guilty conscience was one indication of, of the fact that, uh, that we are created in God's image. 
Uh, and again, that, that we have sinned against God. Again, uh, there's a tendency even for us to look at someone like Albert Speer and others and say, well, yeah, but I'm not as guilty as you are in our pride to defend ourselves. But the reality is, uh, because of sin, then yes, there is guilt. But the great news is, the good news is, there's, there's, there is a way. God has provided a way to alleviate our guilt and to cleanse us of our guilt, to, to forgive us, if you will, most importantly of our guilt. He did that through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really uh, one of the things that we see as we see the Lord Jesus, as we continue to see how Jesus' new covenant, uh, the covenant, new covenant in his blood is, is better than the old and what he's provided for us uh, in, in his cleansing. And uh, again, when we see in this passage and have seen before that Jesus, uh, after he died, was buried, rose again, uh, spent those 40 days upon the earth, ascended back into heaven, passed into the, the, the most holy place, or into the holy place, into the most holy place, uh, and, uh, and there again, the Bible says, was seated at the right hand of the Father. And he reminds us again in the book of Hebrews that, that the Lord Jesus sat down, indicating his finished work for us at, Cal- at Calvary's cross and the, the, res- the fact that he rose again as we celebrated this morning. And again, it was as if though Jesus was saying, mission accomplished. And all of heaven declares, mission accomplished. And we as God's uh, church, as we proclaim the gospel, we're saying mission accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. So with, with, with me today as we think about this, this matter of the new covenant that Jesus has established, think with me about how Jesus has accomplished his mission. First of all, when you consider with me what the old covenant system accomplished. Again, we think about the old covenant. Remember uh, the Bible, that's an, another word for that is the old Testament, that old covenant system that we see. And we've read some about, and we'll look a little more at this morning, but God had a purpose in that. You know, God never does anything for nothing. And God had a real purpose in the old covenant that he had established. And we've looked at some of those before, but notice he, he de- describes here the regular regulation for worship and its earthly place of holiness. The regulations, again, are those ceremonies. You remember those sacrifices that were continuously being offered up by those uh, Jewish priests. Uh, and and had, God had a purpose for them. He had a purpose in the tabernacle, as we're going to see in a few moments, that, uh, that, that God established so clearly. And again, later in the temple uh, that was patterned largely after it. But notice, if you will, I want you to, as we think about what that old covenant system accomplished, the first thing I'd mention is that the tabernacle pictures the attributes of Christ. And, you know, we've said in our, in our study of God's word and Jesus made it clear in his, after his resurrection and in, in his ministry, uh, that again, all the, the pictures, uh, all the things that, that we see in the Old Testament were ultimately pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we've said, the word of God all throughout the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And that's again why as we think about the incarnation, as we think about Christmas, why again you understand that the Jewish people uh, were uh, so uh, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And that particular time in history, the Bible says Jesus came uh, in the fullness of time. When he came, there was an even greater expectation. You see that in the early pages of Luke and how the people were awaiting and and anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And so again, there are, the Bible devotes about 50 chapters in the Old Testament to the establishment of that tabernacle. 
And I remind you, the tabernacle was a, uh, it was a temporary place of worship. I've got a diagram for you here of it, and, and, uh, and this is kind of an opening of it. It wasn't opened up like that, but uh, uh, this is kind of the taking so that you can look inside the tabernacle and see it uh, a little bit more closely. And, uh, and so this, uh, this tabernacle uh, was introduced just after the uh, covenant that God gave the co- old covenant through Moses in the wilderness. And uh, why does he use the tabernacle maybe rather than the temple? You know, the, ta- the tabernacle was temporary. The temple was more permanent. Well, that's exactly the reason he, I believe, uses uh, this tabernacle. Because again, the tabernacle, it was a very elaborate tent, as you're going to see, and very uh, beautiful place. But God was pointing to them the fact that this was temporary, that ultimately it was going to be fulfilled permanently in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, really, as you, for years, the tabernacle was the place of worship. It wasn't until the time of Solomon. Uh, and really, it was really, God blessed it, but what really wasn't originally God's idea. I mean, God honored it, and God directed them in establishing the temple, but, but God led them to the tabernacle. And so again, its temporary nature illustrated its temporary purpose. So again, the, the, the writers, we're going to see in these verses, he omits the outer court uh, right out around the tabernacle, though that was important. Uh, he went straight to the tabernacle itself because of its parallel to Christ's permanent place in heaven. Uh, the outer section of the inside there is called the holy place. We see that as we move into to the, to the tabernacle, the holy place. And I remind you once again, the holy place was only for the priest. The Levites and the priests could enter there for the sacrifices, for the offerings that were offered up. But, but if we'd been there in that day and we'd been Jewish people, we couldn't have gone in there. It was only the priest that could enter there. And so again, he describes some of the things that are, uh, that are there. By the way, the, the holy place was about 30 feet long, 15 feet wide, about 15 feet high. The, uh, the intersection uh, the, uh, inside the Holy of Holies uh, was about 15 foot uh, about a 15-foot cube. So inside the holy place, uh, the place where the priests daily administered these offerings and so forth, uh, he, uh, he begins to give some of the furnishings. The first one is you ca- came in, if you could come into the, the holy place, you'd see the lampstand. And as we said, all these things point to Christ. And while we aren't dogmatic in our, uh, in our application of these, we certainly can see how they point to the Lord Jesus Christ. The lampstand. Kent Hughes says, the seven-branched candlestick of pure gold, he says, speaks of the divine Son, Jesus, who left heaven glory to become the light of the world. Jesus said of himself when he came, I am the light of the world. And that lampstand points to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the light of the world. You see inside that holy place, the, the bread of presence, which again pictures the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who said of himself, I am the bread of life, because he alone is the source of eternal life, and only through Jesus. He's the only one who can sustain us now and for forever. Uh, and so again, we see the Lord Jesus. As we move on uh, past the, this area of the holy holy place. Uh, If you could have gone in uh, at that time, you would go into the most holy place, the holy of holies, as it is called. And here too, we we see the Lord Jesus honored and glorified. You go behind the second curtain, which was the veil. And by the way, in, in the diagram there, the, the veil is uh, open, but in reality, it was not. 
Uh, in fact, it was not open. Only once a year could the high priest enter in uh, to that holy of holies, that most holy place. And notice he, he mentions the altar of incense. This was actually uh, it de- described as being in the holy place. But again, many believe that it's mentioned here represents the f- fact of Christ's in- ministry of intercession on our behalf as our high priest. But in the ho- most holy place, the holy of holies, you find the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the, on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a gold-covered lid called the Mercy Seat. Uh, on top of that, again, you see the, the cherubim. But, but the mercy seat pictured the work of Christ. Uh, and again, the, a, a word in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, the word propitiation uh, is also translated, comes, uh, translated mercy seat. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. How does this picture the work of Christ? How does it point to Jesus? Again, because of his blood that is offered up on our behalf. His blood alone can cleanse us of our sin. But also the the manna that is mentioned there. Uh, Jesus, again, the bread of life. The Aaron's staff points to his, again, being the, the great high priest, the perfect high priest. The tablets of the covenant, uh, which of course were the law. Those two point to Jesus because Jesus alone could fulfill them. They were given to the people, but no one could keep them. No one could obey them. Jesus fulfilled them. And through him, we can experience his uh, fulfillment. And then again, in verse 5, there is the cherubim of glory. These were the angels uh, that were there over the, over the mercy seat. And we're reminded there of Jesus. And even in his birth, you remember, of course, the angels as they announced uh, the birth of the, the Lord Jesus Christ to the shepherds. And the Bible says that those angels, as the glory of the Lord shone around, they proclaimed glory to God in the highest And friend, right now and for all eternity, we're going to be able to be a part of of giving glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's why we exist, is to bring glory to Jesus, to honor him, because he he alone is worthy of glory and will be forever. So again, we see just a brief word about the, the, the tabernacle and about the holy place and the most holy place. And, and we, uh, we know that we can't go, we, we could not go there, but to praise God, we can through now through the Lord Jesus Christ into the presence of God. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But then I want you to see in verses 6 through 10, as we think about this aspect uh, of Jesus' ministry and about the, the ministry of the, of, the ta- of the tabernacle and the old covenant and what it did accomplish, uh, the ministry of the priest here points to the atoning work of Christ. Notice again in verse 6, he, uh, he describes there the preparations having thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section. Again, he's talking here about the holy place. And, uh, and Jesus fulfilled all these offerings and all these sacrifices. He passed through here on his way to the most holy place, the holy of holies. And again, I remind you that only the priest... Uh, only the high priest could go into the, to the most holy place, the holy of holies, and only, he would only do that on the day of, of atonement. Remember what he would do? The Bible describes it in the Old Testament. He would, first of all, he had a, he had a bull and two goats. He would, he would slaughter a bull and he would bring in the, the blood of that bull. Uh, he would 
pour it on or sprinkle it on the, the, uh, on the, the mercy seat and, and at the, on the front of it. And, and uh, again, that would be for himself. Because again, the high priest was sinful himself. He was a sinner and he too needed atonement. And so he would do that and then he would go out and he would again slaughter the, uh, one of those goats and he would take uh, the blood of that goat and, and he would take it in. It had to be one without blemish and without spot. And he would, he would offer that up on behalf of the people. Uh, again, to uh, point toward atonement for their sin. And then he would go out again to that other goat that was there, and he would, he would, he would take that goat, and over that goat, again, he would uh, uh, symbolically place the sins of the people, laying his hands on that goat and confessing over it the sins of the people. And then he would take it to the wilderness and he would let that goat go into the wilderness. And that was to picture, again, God's sending our sin away. But the Bible makes it clear, and the book of Hebrews reaffirms that, that in reality, none of those things ever happened. And what what I mean by that is, none of those things actually forgave the sin of the people. Uh, Those were pointing to, ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ and his work for us on the cross. So again, we see in this old covenant, we see in the tabernacle, the fulfillment of Jesus. I remind you, John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When Jesus came in his incarnation, yes, born as that little baby, uh, he was was, uh, fully God and fully human. And, and we see in the incarnation, the Bible says that that word, uh, that the word became flesh and the word dwelt there means tabernacle. Literally, Jesus tabernacled among us. God tabernacled among us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He, as someone has put it, he pitched his tent among us. He, um, he came near to us so that through him we could gr- draw near to God. That's the whole reason. That was the reason, as we said, for the tabernacle. God wanted to dwell among his people. He wanted for them to know that he desired uh, a relationship with them, that he wanted to come near to them. They couldn't draw near to him because of sin, but, but again, he desired that. And so ultimately, through the Lord Jesus, we can now draw near to God. That is why he came. And that's why, again, one of his names is Emmanuel. What does it mean, church? God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. He came near so that we could draw near to God. So again, we see what the old covenant system accomplished. But let me remind you again of what the old covenant system could not accomplish. What it could not accomplish. The old covenant system, it seemed like, you know, so detailed that it surely it would cover everything, but it was still inadequate. At least two things I'd mention it could not do. First of all, once again, it could not provide access to God. Again, here in in verse 8, the the writer, notice in in, in verse um, 8, he says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates, by the way, again, an affirmation by the writer of Hebrews that the Word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired even the establishment there of the tabernacle and all the details there as you read those in your Old Testament. But as long as the tabernacle remained, it demonstrated that there was no access to God's presence. Again, we see these, we saw that diagram and we can imagine that, but I remind you, 
the, the, the people, people like us, couldn't enter there. We couldn't go into the holy place. Uh, only the high priest could enter into the most holy place and only once a year. And, and, and there, there where that, that altar represented, again, God's, God's presence. And it was as, as if though all of these things were saying, do not come near. You can't come any closer. And again, was that because God didn't desire that? No. Why did he create man? Again, what, what, what was he doing? He was just, again, demonstrating through, the, through those years the need for a sacrifice. Again, the, the need for a relationship would come, that would come through Christ alone. It could not provide full access to God. And secondly, it could not cleanse the conscience. It could not cleanse the conscience. Remember the opening story about uh, guilt and about the guilty conscience? The old covenant sacrifices only served as a symbol, as he says here in verse 9, or as a, a parable. Again, which is symbolic for the present age. He says, according to the arrangements, the gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot, cannot perfect the conscience of the Worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So again, he's, he's pointing to the, to the fact that, that they could not cleanse the conscience, could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. He's saying here these various food and drink regulations, they provided outward ceremonial cleansing. You see, they, they were only, they were about outward things. They were about outward cleansing, but they could not cleanse the real heart of the problem, and that was the, the sin. It might make them healthier. All these food things, we read about those things in the Old Testament, and we're in a time of year when sometimes we don't eat so healthy, uh, but, uh, but they, they had a lot of regulations. It may have made them healthier physically, but it couldn't change their heart. It couldn't deal with their, the problem of their guilt. Notice in ver, back to verse 7 I mentioned earlier, these offerings were only for the people's unintentional sins. Their sins of ignorance. How many of, how many of our sins, and I'm not asking for a show of hands, how many of our sins are intentional sins? If God only forgave you of what you did unintentionally, wow, that wouldn't leave much, would it? I mean, so what did they do? Well, th th there was actually no provision for that. Now, we know, of course, as we read about the story of David, David, uh, David sinned against God, and he cried out for mercy, didn't he? And God is a God of mercy and a God of grace. But we're saying that in these, in these offerings, in these, uh, in, in these uh, various rituals, there was no provision for intentional sins uh, that were committed. People had to cry out to God and, and throw themselves on the mercy of God. God was showing them in this the need for a final and full offering for sin that would come only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 10, he uses a word, the word reformation. He's not talking about the Protestant reformation. He's talking here about the, the word reformation really means to make straight. So what he's describing for us is that the time of reformation was when Jesus came. Jesus came and by his sacrifice, by his precious blood, he straightened out all those problems. He straightened out those things. And, and really that was God's intention all along to keep pointing to 
Jesus. The need for a Savior. The need for one who could, could do what all these symbols meant to symbolize, but ultimately were only going to be fulfilled through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ by his laying down his life for us, by his being raised again, by his offering up his life as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Only Jesus in his new, the blood of his new covenant can cleanse our guilt. John Piper said, isn't it remarkable that the basic problems of life never change? We are humans and we have consciences that witness to our sinfulness with testimonies of real guilt. And we know that what keeps us away from God is not dirty hands or soiled clothes, as you see often in the Old Testament, or distance from an altar or a priest, what keeps us from God is real sin echoing in a condemning conscience. He said, the issue is, how can I come to God when I feel so dirty, when my conscience is so defiled? I believe the heart is asking that question. And dear friend, the answer comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. But thirdly, I want you to see what Christ and his new covenant accomplished. What did Christ accomplish when he came? Well, first of all, notice Christ's blood provides complete access to God's presence. Again, we see here in, uh, in, in these verses, particularly in verse 11, we said, mentioned earlier that when Jesus died... One of the things that happens, as you read about it in the book of Luke, that one of the things that happened during those hours that Jesus was on the cross and our sin was placed upon him and he became sin for us, he was paying our sacrifice in full. The Bible says that, that massive tent, that, that massive uh, rather veil or curtain that separated the, the holy place from the most holy place was rent or torn in two. That second curtain was torn into again describing the fact that God has made it possible through Christ for us to draw near. Verse 11 says, Christ appeared. And when did Christ appear? He's describing here when he appeared as the great high priest, when he ascended back into heaven and he entered the true heavenly permanent tabernacle, if you will. Uh, this was called, and again, he's called here the high priest of good things that have come. These good things that have come, we looked at those in last Sunday's message. They're those provisions of the new covenant, things that are blessings now as a result of what Christ has provided for us in the new covenant. Uh, again, those are described. Uh, verse 12, notice again, verse 12, he describes his entering into this, um, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ's blood provides complete access, if, once again, into God's presence. Um, again, he entered by means of his own blood. Now, don't get the idea that, that he waited until he got to heaven to offer his blood. No, actually, the, his blood was offered up at the cross when Jesus died for us. He was, as his blood was shed there upon the cross, he was offering up that sacrifice, but it was by means of his own blood. Uh, and the good news is, listen, I want to give you some good news. The good news is, is that when Jesus entered in to that, to that holy place, we entered into that most holy place, into the very presence of God the Father. Guess what? The Bible says we went with him. The Bible says we are in 
Christ. And if you're not sure about that, listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The Bible says, child of God, if you've repented of your sin, placed your faith and trust in Christ, the Bible says you have been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, risen with Christ, ascended with Christ, and now he says you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You are in Christ. You are with him. You can't get any more secure than that. Amen? And that's, that's the beautiful promise that God has for us. And he says to us in Ephesians Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 4, we've looked at it before, but it reminds you of it. Hebrews 4, 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, because Jesus paid our debt in full as his children today, we can now come near. We no longer see that sign that says, stay away, you can't come. No, you can't go beyond here. We're welcomed in through the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only can we come, but we can come with boldness. Does that mean that we've never done anything wrong? Does that mean we've never failed? Does that mean even now as believers we don't continue to struggle with sin? Of course we do. But it means that in the precious blood of Christ, we are now accepted, the Bible says, in the beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ. What wonderful provision that Jesus has made for us that we can draw near, that we have complete access into God's presence. But second, I want you to see that Christ's blood provides eternal redemption. We read that already in the second part of uh, uh, verse 12. But again, he, he reminds us here and uh, again, in verse 12, he entered once into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He secures for us an eternal redemption. This shows, again, the source of our eternal security. Eternal means eternal. By the way, someone said, you believe in eternal security. There's really no other kind. It's not secure if it's not eternal. But it is secure because of the work of Christ. The word redemption means the price paid for the liberation of a slave. And as you apply it to Christ's work, his death was the price paid to free sinners from the penalty of our sin and from the power of sin to set us free. We're no longer, according to Romans 6, slaves of sin. We are now bought and paid for by the precious blood of Christ. Peter uses the same word in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus was the sinless lamb of God. And as we celebrate Christmas, as we think about Christmas this year, we think about the incarnation. Again, we question some, uh, some question the, uh, the virgin birth, but again, it was the virgin conception of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit that enabled uh, God's miracle, that the greatest miracle ever of, again, God becoming fully 
human without sin. That's how he escaped the sin nature. And over and over again in the Old Testament, as you read about those sacrifices, those sacrifices had to be without blemish and without spot. And every time you see that word, I hope you think of Jesus. Because in reality, that's the only one who is truly without blemish and without spot. Again, God's miracle of the incarnation as we celebrate it at Christmas, that made possible made that possible and led to, through his death for us, eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced his eternal redemption? Have, have you experienced the, the precious uh, redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ being bought back from your sin and, and brought to relationship with Christ? But thirdly, I want you to see Christ's blood cleanses the sinner's guilty conscience. Verse 14, once again, he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Again, he reiterates that Jesus did inwardly and permanently what the blood of ashes uh, and blood and ashes of animals could not do. It enabled the power of the enabled by the power of the eternal Holy Spirit, he offered himself to God to pure our conscience from dead works. Once again, our conscience has been defined as, our, as a person's inner knowledge of himself. Again, our indication of our being, uh, being uh, born in God's image and conceived in God's image. But again, uh, the Bible says, you know, sometimes people make this statement. Well, just let your conscience be your God. Have you ever said that? Just let your conscience be your God. Well, you know what? That's not a good idea. Not safe. You know why? Because the Bible says our conscience has been defiled by sin. A lot of people, you know, if they let their conscience be their God, that's why they do such wicked things. Uh, they still experience some guilt. But, but, but again, not only that, but the Bible says our conscience can become seared and hardened by continual sin. Our conscience can either excuse us or it can accuse us unrightly. Uh, so no, that's not, that's not wise. But yet when we turn from our sin and place our faith in Jesus as our Lord, then he deals with our matter of, of guilt. He cleanses our conscience and he gives us the assurance and the peace and the joy of God's forgiveness. But finally, Christ's blood enables believers to serve the living God. Again, he, he indicates to us that in verse 14, that through this, he said that we're able to pure our conscience, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, in our, in our lost condition, our works are dead. We can't please God. We can't do anything to please God in our works, and our works cannot glorify God. And so all of our self-efforts are just that. They're just dead works. You may be here today, and you're trying to please God. You're trying to do better. You're trying to clean your life up. And the Bible says when you recognize your need for Christ and what Jesus has done for you through his death, that you can come to recognize that you have to turn from your dead works and trust in Christ and him alone to save you. And when he saves you and cleanses you and makes you clean, then you can serve God. You can worship God. You can present your body. As Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There's a man by the name of Charles Simeon who later became a, a godly pastor, uh, I believe in England. 
And he was reading one day and he'd read about how the Jews would place their guilt on the head of an animal. Uh, and, and again, that picture of what Christ did for us. And as he thought about that, he responded this way. He said, what? He said, may I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? Then God willing, I will not bear them on my own on my soul one moment longer. And so immediately by faith, as he turned from his sin, placed his faith in Christ, he by faith transferred his guilt or recognized the transfer of his guilt to Jesus. Let me ask you this morning, do you have a guilty conscience? Are you burdened with guilt this morning? I want to again remind you that, that you can turn from your sin today, place your faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross, and again made possible by his resurrection life. So that the Bible says this great exchange takes place. The Bible says you come to recognize that he on the cross became sin for us. He became our sin and our guilt so that we might become his righteousness. So he, we are able to exchange by his grace our sin, our guilt for his righteousness. What a beautiful exchange. And dear friend, today we pray that if that has not happened in your life, that it will happen today. But let me speak to those who are believers. You know, as believers in Christ, those who have been saved, we too can struggle with guilt, can't we? Things that happened in our past, things that we did that we're ashamed of. And, and again, the Bible says we have this uh, enemy, he's called the accuser of the brethren. And he accuses us night and day. And even some of God's people struggle with guilt about things that have happened in the past. And I just want to say to you, God wants to set you free. I want to remind you of a verse from last week's passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. One of the promises and the blessings of the new covenant is this. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. What a promise, brothers and sisters. God says that when you are washed in the blood of the Lamb, you repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ under the new covenant of Christ, God says He remembers your sin how long? No more. As we said last week, that doesn't mean God is forgetful. It means God chooses to forget. He chooses not to remember. So if God can do that, and God does do that for his children, then I want to challenge you as a child of God, get in on that blessing. Claim that blessing of forgiven sin. God want, doesn't want you living under the burden of guilt. He wants you to know the joy of forgiveness. And yes, we fail. Even as believers, we do. And, and, and again, we don't, we, we, are not to, uh, have, we don't love sin anymore. But again, because we still have sinful flesh and we still fall into temptation, when that happens in our lives, the Bible says that we look back to that finished work of Christ on our behalf. And we claim those blessings and, 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 and experience what God has promised to us, that he remembers our sin no more. In the words of that hymn, uh, It is well with my soul, the third verse says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. 
Dear friend, if you've not experienced that, even as a believer, I challenge you today to claim that wonderful provision and blessing of the new covenant in Christ. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.